I'd like to bring attention to what Roy had already announced, which was the Life Prep U coming up in, uh, starting next week as a six-week class. I think one of the things that many people struggle with is, like, how do I know what decision to make? Should I go this way? Should I go that way? What's God's will in these matters? In fact, I think the echo theme from the weekend had to do with hearing God's voice. What does that mean? What does that look like? Uh, how do I know what to choose? And oftentimes we focus in on like two or three big things uh, in our lifetime that we focus on, where to go to school, who to marry, that kind of thing. But uh, we, we need to know God's will every moment. And so I think this class will really equip you and help you in that regard. So I hope uh, that you guys will jump in at 9.15 and be a part of the class, six weeks on knowing and doing God's will. The second thing I'd like to note is today is kind of a milestone. It's week number 52 in the Gospel of Mark, all right? Week 52, one year in the Gospel of Mark. I don't know about you, but I've loved walking with Jesus. Um, Even though I've obviously read the Gospels before, there's something about just the slow go through it and just soaking it in and really seeing a lot from Jesus' life that I did not notice before and really, really pondering things. And and there's something just beautiful about that. And and here's one thing, and I want to say this to our students, but also I want to address it to all of us because it's so true. Long obedience in the same direction is so important. Just faithful, consistent uh, following Christ. So many times we get on highs like D-Now, which is awesome. Been a part of D-Now for, uh, for so many years. It's, it's amazing. You go to camps, you uh, do these things, hear certain sermons, and you get fired up. But it doesn't last past like the next couple of days. Why? Because there's no long obedience there. There's no faithfulness to the things that God has revealed to you, has shown you, has taught you. And so my encouragement is get a, a system, get a plan in place to continue to follow God, to hear from God to be a part of what he's doing and to obey him. And the primary way that you hear from God, through his word, through prayer, and through the church body. We need one another. We need to be taught the word. We need in community with one another to, to understand the word together. And so that's why we do church. We don't come just so we can check it off our list and we've done it, but we come so we can know how to follow Christ and worship him with our whole heart, our whole life. And so as today we go back to Mark chapter 12, I encourage you, long obedience, faithfulness, just staying with it. We're in chapter 12, verse 35 through 44 today. I'll read it for you. Just follow along on the screen or in your Bible, hopefully what you have. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how, how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and in the place of honor at feast, who devour, devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers." they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. 
For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she has, all she had to live on. Let's pray, and we'll look into this passage. God, we thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that those who uh, are, are believers in you, that have the Holy Spirit in their hearts right now, God, that they will uh, just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to them, open their hearts to what you want to say through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Watching people can be very interesting. I don't know if you've ever been to an amusement park or somewhere where you just sit down and kind of hung out and just kind of watched people walk by and things they did or do. Uh, one of my favorite spots now in Bainbridge to watch people is at the outdoor uh, little seating area at Chick-fil-A. And I know this is horrible to say, but uh, I was guilty of it myself when I walked in there the first time, and maybe some of you know what I'm talking about, is that the little latch that you have to open the door to get into that area and if you've been to a swimming pool, you know how those things work. But then, I can't remember if it pushes or pulls, but it does the opposite of what you think it should do. And so, as you're sitting there, people will come up, and they will get, have all kinds of trouble getting into that gate. And then they're super embarrassed because you're sitting there watching them, and oftentimes I've even had to jump up and go and help them get into the area, and they're super embarrassed by that. And I quickly tell them, I did the same thing when I walked in here the first time. But it's, it's funny to watch the reaction and their embarrassment. Some other examples of just watching people and, and strange things that people will do and even devious things that people will do. Um, I, uh, one, one time when I was in Dallas, I followed a homeless guy who had a sign that people were giving him money. I followed him. I was just curious. I was like, I want to see what this guy, where he goes. And he, he pocketed the money at the intersection when the flow of cars kind of went through and then I watched him go into a convenience store and I, I pulled in there and he came back out with alcohol and now we know that's not true for every uh, homeless person not a lot of homeless people hopefully but it was true for him and so watching people and some of the things that they might do is sort of interesting for sure I had one experience which was really funny that happened this morning I had to add this late into my message so it was like 5.15 this morning early early and I was running uh, on Twin Lakes Drive. So many of y'all know where that is. And I, as I was running, it, it was dark, of course. And I saw a bus parked in, in at a house. And I could tell it had a church name on it. So I was like, oh, D-Now House. Here's where D-Now students are hanging out. And I was watching and looking at the bus trying to see which church it was. And as I got closer, like I was startled because this dude in a black hoodie was crouching, literally crouching down in the yard doing something with the water drain it looked like, and he was up to no good, all right? This was an adult. This wasn't a kid, and I thought my first reaction was, he's turning off the water so, you know, they won't have water when they get up to showers. It's a prank. All these things go on all the time at D-Now, but I, I actually became more startled when he jumped up, and, and like, and I was running by, and it's pretty close to the street, and, and he, it was kind of weird. I felt a bit threatened, and, and a car drove by at the exact same time. It's just a weird situation, but you know that when you start to watch people and see things happening, you, you, you realize that people are very, very interesting. Now, today we're going to see Jesus watching people and Jesus observing people and watching some stuff that's going on. Now, the thing that's great, I'm glad that I'm not God and you're not God. When we watch people, we can judge their behavior based on the obvious, but we have no idea what's going on in their hearts. We have no idea their motives and their intent for the, for the things that they're doing. Obviously, if they're sinning or do something that's, that's straight out against the word, we know uh, that, that that's wrong, right? But we don't know when people do something and we think, oh, that doesn't seem like they're doing it out of the right motives. 
but it's not our job to judge their heart. But Jesus has that ability. Jesus can look and see, and he never gets it wrong. He understands why we're doing what we're doing. And so what's comforting as a child of God is that Jesus isn't watching us, as maybe some of you maybe grew up feeling like Jesus was watching you with a baseball bat in hand. As soon as you messed up, he just wanted to hit you over the head with it because you're so bad and horrible. Jesus, when he watches us, he watches us with grace. And he wants us to become more like himself. And so everything that he does isn't to shame us. It's to deliver us from ourselves and to help us become more like him. And so in today's text, Jesus deals with some people who don't know him, and Jesus is pretty, pretty tough on them. And why is he able to do that? Because he's God. He's the son of God. He's able to see into the heart because he's more than just a man. He's God. And so today he goes after these guys called the scribes. The scribes were the professional theologians of the day. They were the lawyers because they took and interpreted the law of Moses. And Jesus is going after them hard in this passage of Scripture because these are the guys who should know and understand the word. They should see Jesus and who he is, but instead they're so blinded by not only their unbelief but also their corruption. They're they're just straight-out corruption, as we'll see in this text. So verse 35 Jesus is still in this temple area, and he says, now he's asking the question. He's been asked a lot of questions over the last few weeks. They're, they're coming after Jesus. Now he turns the table. He's, he's asking them a question. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? All right, so this is kind of like a riddle. What he's, put, he, he's wanting to put the, them into a spot where they have to acknowledge that they don't know. They're not as smart as Jesus. They don't know the word like Jesus knows the word. And more importantly, they don't know who Jesus is. And so Jesus isn't questioning the fact that the Messiah is of the line of David. He's, he's a descendant of David. Jesus is not questioning that at all. In fact, Jesus was a descendant of David, not only on his mother's side, Mary, but also through his stepfather, Joseph, as pointed out in the genealogies found in Matthew and Luke. So what is he getting at in this riddle? Jesus is quoting Psalm 110.1, and the scribes would have instantly recognized this passage as a messianic prophecy, a prophecy of the coming king who would rescue Israel. Verse 36, and he says, uh, Jesus is quoting, he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies Uh, put your enemies under your feet. And so Jesus is saying to them, you say that the Messiah is the son of David, but David here in this prophecy under the power of the Holy Spirit says, the Lord, just track with this for a second, I won't go deep into this, the Lord, which is Yahweh God, the first Lord on the screen, Yahweh God, the Lord says to my Lord, who is understood to be the Messiah, the coming king, and David is saying this, set at my right hand. So the riddle is, Jesus is asking them, in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord, so how can he be his son? So how could the son of David also be the Lord of David at the same time? All right, wake up your brain for a second, all right? That's a lot to digest, right? So Jesus is throwing a riddle at him. All right, how can the son of David also be the Lord of David at the same time? Now, this kind of line of argument kind of seems kind of silly or strange maybe to us, but the idiosyncrasies, the little things that they knew and the, the things that were part of their culture are kind of lost on us. 
Just like the same thing is true for things that happen today that even 20, 25 years ago made perfect sense. Uh, we were watching uh, the other night, we were watching uh, the show Magnum P.I. And in the, in the show, Magnum was saying something to someone about contacting him, and he said, I'm in the book. And I looked at Harrison, and I said, do you know what that means, I'm in the book? And he said, I have no idea what that means, right? And so if you're under a certain age, you have no idea what I'm in the book means, all right? Us adults, we know exactly what that means, because they used to deliver them to our house every single year, but that doesn't happen anymore. So Things get lost in culture over time, even within 20, 25 years. So it's confusing even more to us, but the people get it. Look at verse 37. The great throng, they, the, the masses, they heard this, and they got it. They knew what the riddle meant. And the riddle meant was, it was this. The Messiah must be much more than just a physical descendant of David, as the scribes would have thought. The Messiah, in this verse, as seen in this, is the Lord of David. He's the Lord of David. So Jesus is saying, you scribes, you guys who study the Bible, you don't get it. You just think that he's this coming king who's just a a normal guy who's coming to rule Israel and take over Israel. Well, he's so much more than that. The coming king is the very son of God. He's the one that David himself would say, you're my Lord. You're the Messiah, my Lord. How could that be? The son and the Lord at the same time. And throughout the Psalm 110, we won't take the time to walk through this, but interesting if you want to go back and read this prophetic uh, psalm, he describes this second Lord as one who sits at God's right hand, a place of power, one who will triumph over all his enemies and rule over them. He will lead a glorious army, and he will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And he will have divine power to crush kings, judge nations, and slay the wicked. So clearly, we're talking about so much more than a human being. We're talking about the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And Jesus has been puzzling and, 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 and causing these leaders of Israel to marvel since he was 12 years old in the temple. You remember the story of Jesus teaching in the temple and explaining in the temple, and they, they scratched their head like, well, man, this young man is incredible. He, the Bible knowledge he knows. But, you know, they're not so amused anymore. In fact, we're going to see in a couple of days in the, in the text that they're going to take Jesus and arrest him and crucify him and kill him. It's, they're not amused by this. They're watching. Jesus is watching them, and Jesus knows they're a bunch of fakes. Look at verse 38. He says, in his teaching, he's primarily talking to his disciples at this point. He says, beware. Beware of those scribes who like to walk around in long robes in the marketplace. They like to be greeted, have the best seats, the places of honor. I think about, even for my own life, I I think about this. And this is important to remember. I have to say, I heard it said probably growing up at least a a half dozen times, maybe more often than that. I remember as as a kid in church hearing this and thinking, you know, I just don't understand that. That can't be true. And even as I got older, I didn't think it, it could be true. I, I just like, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but, I, you know, you're probably a one-off. This is probably not the way it's going to happen. What am I talking about here? I heard this over and over again as a kid in church. They said, for those of you who maybe are going into ministry or going off to a, a Christian college, Christian college is the easiest place in the world to get out of the will of God. I heard that numerous times growing up. But you know what? 
I experienced that in reality my, the beginning of my sophomore year in Bible college. I experienced the fact that it can be a very lonely place to be where you're hearing Scripture taught, you're memorizing Scripture, you're attending classes that teach you Scripture, you're going to chapels three days a week, you're hearing missionaries come in all the time, and you even have to read the Bible through as part of your assignments from class. But even as you're inundated with all of this truth and the message of God, you can be deaf to God's speaking. And you can turn a deaf ear to what he desires for you and actually become hard in your heart even as you read and study the very thing that softens hearts and brings people to Jesus. And that's what the scribes were so guilty of. And it's a scary place to be in. And scripture teaches us that each time we hear God's truth, our accountability before him increases. Do you hear that? Every time we hear God's truth, our accountability before him increases. You know what that says? That says if you come to church week after week and you've been in church all your life, you have higher accountability. God's going to hold you more accountable to the truth that he gives in his, in, in his word. And so it's no excuse to say, I don't know, or I don't, I don't have enough knowledge, or I'm not equipped enough. God wants you to apply his word to your life. And that's the scribes. They knew their Bible, but they had no excuse for the behavior. Let's just walk quickly through their behaviors. They like to walk around in long robes. That seems weird to us. Like, you know, who does that, right? But they wanted to stand out and get attention. They just wanted to be, I am so spiritual. Look at me. They like to gather, they like to be greeted in the marketplace. Hello, Rabbi. How are you today? And so they loved being addressed with titles. It made them feel above and more important than other people. Verse 39 said they, they would have the best seats in the synagogue. They wanted to be seen. They had a bench they would sit in where everybody would see them in church and think of them as the most pious and important people around. It says they, and the places of honor at feast, they felt like that their position and their stature should bring them privileges. I get special places because I'm a scribe. I'm a religious leader. And then verse 40, skip down, and, they, and for a pretense, they make long prayers. They were so good at just praying long, eloquent prayers, just saying the right things. But they weren't talking to God. They were talking to impress other people. They used their religious positions as a means to fill their insatiable appetites for things like attention, respect, and admiration. But Jesus, obviously, is watching, right? Jesus knows he sees the heart. He sees right through them. And we know the disciples, they've been struggling with some of the same things, right? Who's the greatest? Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? But look at their role models. Look at who their role models were, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Back when I coached soccer for a few years, um, one of the first things that I noticed about my coaching and my drills that I did, I was exactly like the coach that I had in high school. In fact, you know, I would, we always started out our practices in a little circle and we would stretch out and, and get ready, you know, um, for, for practice and, and spend probably about 10 minutes there. And I started out the exact same way. The way that he made us run at the beginning of practice, we did that. We did wind sprints at the end, just like uh, our coach did. And even the drills and things that we did during practice, I structured it just like my coach did. Why? 
because that's what I knew. That's what I saw. He was my model. We were pretty successful, and so I just imitated him. I just did what he did. Let's apply this spiritually. Leaders, elders, deacons, staff, those of you who lead K-groups and are involved in some kind of leadership position, people are watching your life. They're watching what you're doing. And James 3, 1 says, Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You see, leaders must do everything they can to point people to Jesus and deflect attention away from themselves. You point people to Jesus. You don't get on an ego trip through your spiritual position like the scribes did. You don't all of a sudden think because you have a little Bible knowledge that you're something special and you want to impress people with your theological words and terms. Jesus says, beware. This is not a good place to be in. You're stealing from the glory of God by trying to take on this glory for yourself. And so what did Jesus do? We've seen this. Jesus showed the disciples a completely different path. He said, you know what? Don't, don't try to be great. Become small, like a child. He, he told them that the path to greatness was humility and being a servant. These are who he's looking for in his kingdom. Those are going to be the great people in his kingdom. But we know that, that this whole pride issue and the motives behind it, it can be very, very tricky. You know that sometimes when you serve, you serve out of duty. We serve out of some underlying motives of self-love, that what, what am I getting out from this? I like when people praise me and say things about me. And so even our hearts, even when we're trying to, attempting to do something with pure motives and right motives, we can fall into bad habits or just mindless um, serving or even worse, I'm trying to get something out of this for myself. And that's where we need the Holy Spirit to give us that heart check. And to make sure that our motives are right. And, I, and, I, and that's that, what I do. I mean, I just try to do that every single time that I get up in front of people. And in, in the way that when I serve and, and minister, I just try to pray and say, God, help me to do this in a way that's pleasing to you and it's not about me. And sometimes it means taking a mundane task and turning into an act of worship because everything can be worship, eating and drinking, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But especially those of us who have, have the opportunity and the privilege to share Christ and share God's word. He says, be aware of the responsibility that you have and be sure your heart, the best you can, is pure. Because we all can fall into, I think, what Satan loves to use is what I call the performance trap. It, it, it says, basically, his formula is your significance is found in your performance and the opinions of other people. Anybody there with me? Your, your significance is found in your performance, and then the opinions of others, what they say, what they think. And we build our lives on this thing subtly, even as we attempt to serve God and, and say we're serving God. Be careful. The only solution to Satan's formula to destroy us and make us just to, to turn our lives over to ourselves and be about us is the gospel. It's, as, as Stephen pointed out, and as Roy pointed out, is keeping our eyes upon Jesus. Galatians 2.20. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. So it's not about me. And in and, and those moments where I want to make it about me, and, oh, you know, I like it because everybody's looking at me, and they're saying, wow, you're great, you're awesome. Or, or they're just, you, you like 
feeling important in that position, or you like the way it makes you feel, and it's all about you, and it's not deflected toward God. And you begin just to soak this in, Satan's strategy. Wow, I love it. I love it. You can't become Christ-like in that. I no longer live, Paul wrote, but Christ lives in me. This life I live in the body, in the flesh, the things I do, the things I touch, the where I walk, the things I do in the body, I do for Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what we're called to do. And so these scribes, they're so far off base. And then look at verse 40, how horrible this is. It's hard to even imagine that they would stoop to this position, but I've seen many Christians who have used their influence to do similar things. Verse 40, who devour widows' houses. What does that mean? Do they like burn their houses down? What does that mean? One of the jobs of these scribes during the time of Christ, they actually served as estate planners for the needy, those widows who were left without a husband with, with some financial means. And so it was their job to help them to live and to be able to manage these things. But instead, apparently they were taking a large cut for themselves. They were exploiting these, the most helpless people in society for their own gain financially. And Jesus says, look in verse 40, they will receive greater condemnation. Their actions and what they're doing and saying and the way they're turning about themselves, be ready. Greater condemnation is coming. They're going to be severely punished. They're going to pay for it in the end because Jesus is watching, right? Jesus is watching. And then verse 41, what does Jesus do? He goes and he sits down there in the temple opposite the treasury where they would be putting offerings in. There were 13 boxes where people would come and put their offerings in. And he watched people putting their money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And Jesus is watching. He's seeing this go on. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny, to give you an equivalent. That was about 10 minutes of work at a a minimum wage. And so we're talking about a very insignificant amount of money. And he called his disciples to himself, hey, guys, come here. Truly I say to you, that poor widow right there, she's put more in than all those who have contributed to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. They're not going to miss it. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. What's interesting about this little section here, follow, follow me for a second, okay? So Jesus has been casting condemnation upon the religious leaders of the day. Now we have this little uh, story with the, the widow and the giving, but we're going to jump right back into more condemnation next week. I would agree that this passage doesn't have as much to say about our giving as it does about what was going on in this culture and these scribes and the evil they were doing and taking advantage of people. You've heard this passage, and it may be true. I, I'm saying there's different people who will take this and interpret it different ways. I'm, I'm going to tell you this is the way that I take it, and I changed my mind when I was studying it. I used to be more of leaning this way. Maybe you've heard these expressions, which probably are true, and you can find verses. I just don't think this text, that's the point. God measures giving not by what we give, but by what we keep for ourselves. You've heard that expression. Good expression. The value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. We've heard that. That's true. How we give is more important than what we give. I've heard that hundreds of times in church. How we give is more important than what we give. All those things are true, but I don't think they're the point of the passage here. 
I think, and, and John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur, in his commentary writes this, and I agree with him 100%. I'm going to read straight from this. It will be on the screen. It says, She was duped into giving all she had by the false promise of Jewish legalism that doing so would bring her blessing. She is a tragic example of how the corrupt religious system mistreated widows, and that is what connects this passage with the judgment passages that precede and follow it. So I think Jesus is just continuing to make his point. He's showing, look, these scribes and these religious people who should be doing good and serving and caring and knowing the word and recognizing Jesus, he's sitting there watching them and he's seeing this widow who has to go and give everything she has to live on the most vulnerable person in society because they sold her with a bill of goods that said, you know what, you can't outgive God. You give, give him everything and he's just going to bless you. And here they are, they're robbing her blind, and they're stealing from her. And we know this is, this is true in our society today. You watch on the TV, right? The guy who says, just give, call this number, give to this, give to my ministry, and I promise you God's going to bless you tenfold. And how many people, the weakest and the most hurting and the most needy of society, they turn and they give money away that they don't even have to help this prosperity gospel preacher. It's a, it's a shame, and the same thing was happening during this time. Should we give sacrificially? Absolutely. You can find in Corinthians plenty of, pass, uh, plenty of verses that talks about giving in a way that's sacrificial, but it also talks about giving in a way that's planned and in a way that thinks through it and, and looks at it and says, God, what do you want from me? Most of us, we just give mindlessly. We put, you know, it's the same amount. We put it in the plate. I'm guilty of that. I got my 10%. There it goes in the plate. We need to pray about what God wants us to give. We need to seek God and say, God, what do you want me to give? Because we are guilty of giving out of our abundance many times. But I don't think that's the point, again, in this passage, because you don't see in this passage him commending her. He just states the obvious. He, he doesn't commend her. He doesn't um, present any principles here from his observation. He just basically points out, here, here, here's what's going on in this situation. And so I think that Jesus is exposing again the hypocrisy, this false piety of these religious people. So Jesus, his identity, who he was as God's son, he's able to point out these hypocrisy in their lives, and he can do that for us as well. Jesus lives inside of his children. And he can help expose those areas of our life where we know we're fake. Where we know that we go through the motions and we're, we appear to be pretty good at this religious thing. But in reality, maybe we're not much different than the scribes and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. That there's no heart involved into it. There's no seeking God. It's just mindless. Wrote, routine. What's in it for me? I'll serve until somebody offends me, and then I'm, I'm, I'm checking out because, you know what, I didn't sign up for that. I, you know, it's my church, for goodness sake. You know, people should be kind to me. I'm serving, and people are, like, treating me bad, you know. It's about us. We turn it around, and we make it about us. And when we make ministry, we make serving about us, we're like the scribes. What can I get from this? What kind of attention, status can I get from it? So I want to leave you with, with three questions to examine yourself. 
The scribes and the Pharisees were so good at focusing on everybody else. What about you? Whose sin are you focused in on? Think about it, all right? Put your thinking. I want, I want you to hear all three of these questions, and then I want you to grab one of them. I want you to write it down or make a note in your phone, and I want you to really, really, this week, allow God to change your heart. Whose sin do you focus in on? You're ultra-critical at finding everybody else's problems, but you don't see your own. You're a Pharisee. You're, you're a scribe. You're so good at recognizing others, but not yourself. Second question. What is the focus of your joy, your security, your contentment? How, where do you go to get validated? Where do you go to find your significance? Is it the world, the stuff of the world, your job? Is it relationships? Is it even this deal you have worked out with God, God, I do for you, and then you're going to do for me, so I serve, and I, I like doing these things because you're going to get return to me uh, and, and that's your motivation. That's where you find your security and your contentment. Or the third question, who is the focus of your service and ministry? Is it yourself or is it God? I'm going to serve as long as I'm happy. But once I'm not happy, once it's inconvenient to me, then I'm, I'm, I'm out. I didn't sign up for that. So three responses. Pick the one that's most you're most guilty of, the Holy Spirit pointing out to you. If the first one is, just ask God, God, show me my sin. Show me my sin. Will you pray that prayer? Show me, the, you, you ultra-critical, pharisaical person, will you pray that prayer? God, show me my sin. Before I start trying to find everybody else's sin, show me my sin. Second one, you're looking for your validation in all the stuff you're doing and the, the activity and what people say. Here's your prayer. Allow me to rest in the gospel. Jesus says, I've done it all. You don't have to earn. You don't have to measure up. You're my child. You're fully accepted because of the gospel. What I did, not what you do. And out of that is our motive for serving. Because God, I I find joy in serving you. And then third, Who is the focus of your service and ministry? God, give me Jesus-centered humility. Jesus-centered humility. That I can serve others like you served. That I can become less so that you can become great. That I can be like a child. I bring nothing to the table. I I got nothing but what God can use through me. I'm not special. God's special. God, work through me in this. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that gives us truth, that gives us the the, the things that we need to just live our lives so that we can live for your glory and not for our own glory. God, show us the difference. So many times it's so subtle when we're living for ourselves versus living for you. And God, I pray that those in here the Holy Spirit spoke to about one of these three things God, may they follow through and and spend time, significant real time with you, not just praying canned prayers, but praying real prayers to you that, that, that inquire your mind and your heart and expose their sin and confess their sin and ask you to just live through them and be the power that they need to live a true and pure life.
one that's from a true heart of worship, not from a self-centered, selfish existence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.